Hello everyone and welcome. This is the Wine Hour. Fantastic to be back uh, for one hour of entertainment and discussion and discovery in the world of wine. I can see a lot of regulars, I can see a lot of new uh, people coming in, so a warm welcome to all of you. We prepared a fantastic program for you this evening and uh, here's the menu uh, on cork. It's about uh, the discussion on the trends and news of the wine world. And we have something very special for you tonight. Then it's License to Taste, uh, where you'll be hearing from Tanisha about uh, some tips on wine. And then you'll be able to ask any questions you want to her. And then we'll move on to our last part, uh, which is the Have a Drink With Me, uh, where we're going to have an interview with our very special guest. Let's see who the cast of uh, this evening is. Coming from San Francisco, it's a great honor, privilege, and pleasure to welcome our special guest, Laura Catena, the Managing Director of Bodega Catena Zapata and the Catena Institute of Wine Founder and Board. <laughs> Good afternoon, Laura, how are you? I'm fine, thank you. What, what are you drinking? Well, I am actually uh, drinking a mix of coffee and chai. Oh, fair enough. It's called Wait. a dirty chai. And <laughs> it's fantastic stuff. It's, you know, a lot of caffeine from all directions uh, because it's a little early for me to drink wine, but... Uh, fair fair later, enough. Yes. <laughs> later on, there will, be, there will be wine. Of course, uh, every now, day. You, you've been waiting for them for the past two weeks and uh, here they are, the one and only wine dream team. Coming from New York City, it's such an honor to have the honorary member of the Wine Dream Team, Mr. Ray Isle. Thanks. I'm very, very happy to be here. <laughs> Good afternoon, Ray. Uh, what are you drinking? Um, I just poured myself a little, um, it's hard to see with the light, but Vittoria Selva Piana Chianti Rufina. I've been tasting a bunch of um, affordable wines um, for a column and uh, um, and it's a, it's a, you know, it's a very straight, it's a Chianti Rufina, basic, you know, not reserve and not anything, but, but really lovely. So yeah, and hard it's work. under 20 bucks. You have to taste wine for work. It's hard work. It's and very, it, it's tough. Yeah. Next from another continent coming from Paris, the city of love, <laughs> the one and only Tanisha Townsend. <laughs> Hi. Good evening. Good evening, Tanisha. <laughs> How Good evening. You? What are you drinking? I'm drinking a Muscadet. This Ooh. I had a class earlier this evening, and they were doing wines under 10 euro, and this was left over. So okay. I okay. took it off their hands. And next in the wine dream team, and from London, <laughs> the refreshed and relaxed and red post vacation Akos Portek. <laughs> Good evening, Akos. Good evening, good evening, everyone. I am drinking. I'm drinking Tokai. Ah, Tokai. From Istvan Sepshi. It's my sweet, my sweet tooth speaking. Okay. And last but not least, from another continent, the one and only also Jamie Oraho from Napa Valley. <laughs> good afternoon, Jamie. What are you drinking? Good afternoon. Tea, coffee. Uh, literally the most boring person, uh, but I am hydrating, which is very important, as we okay. all know. So it's hydration. water for me this afternoon. H hydration is good. 
Um, so everyone's ready. So we grab, grab a glass of wine. I'm having a uh, Lebanese rosé, uh, Grenache, high altitude, Terjoie. Yep. Pretty good. And uh, so drink anything. Uh, spirits, tea, chai, dirty chai, uh, <laughs> as long as you have something to drink in your hands. And uh, here's a toast to all of you. And uh, cheers. Cheers. Now we can relax. And um, here we go. So Uncorked is all about commenting the trends and the news of the world of wine. And uh, today we are joined by uh, Akosh, Jamie, Ray, and uh, where's Tanisha? Tanisha, she was supposed to be here. <laughs> whenever you can oh sorry you were, you were trying to He's escape so well trained from you were trying to I'm so used to okay sorry <laughs> so for the for the past years we have been uh, witnessing the emergence of new wine consumer communities it's not anymore the white middle-aged male who drinks wine uh, so what happened why have they emerged are they are these new opportunities i'm going to run a a, a quick poll um, you can answer it whenever you want, and we'll look at the answers at the end of the segment. Um, who would like to start talking about the new wine communities? My God, you could not have asked this question that I started drinking a year ago. Are you kidding me? <laughs> <laughs> You're a fast I mean, learner. <laughs> my Lord. Yeah. Well, actually... So I was thinking about this, um, and I know we were talking about different communities um, uh, in lots of different ways when we when we discussed this originally. But I also think there's um, just thinking back on when I started um, understanding that there were different demographics that maybe weren't represented in the um, the traditional way that we were thinking. Um, really, is when I was in the UK, probably fifteen, maybe twenty years ago. Um, and there were a bunch of studies done at the time that showed that even though technically we all thought that men were drinking the most wine, um, since so much wine was actually being bought in supermarkets, uh, the person who was buying the wine, physically buying the wine, was often um, a woman. And I think that got people thinking, um, you know, back then about, hang on, maybe we're marketing things to people and maybe we need to be opening up our eyes and looking in different ways. Um, and I think, you know, women sort of grew as a category generally. And then over the last couple of years, I think it's become really, at least in the U.S., it's been a, a very um, eye-opening moment because uh, there are huge um, non-white communities of wine drinkers um, that, you know, here in Napa, for example, it just never crossed anyone's mind that that might be <laughs> Um, and slowly but surely, you know, we're sort of realizing that, no, actually, um, loving wine and enjoying wine um, is, is open to everybody. So but is that a problem for the companies, the wineries, the distributors, the media? Uh, do you have to change your... I mean, I would say it's, it, I'd say it's a great opportunity. Um, I mean, it's a problem if you're like horribly racist and sexist, I guess, but then you have other problems too. 
<laughs> substantial ones honestly <laughs> right. no i mean i think it's yeah. amazing like all of a sudden it opens up this whole new world um it does mean we have to change the way we do things it means we have to think differently about where we are going and how we um say things and and how we do things because i think we're we're marketing to to very different audiences so we need to all of a sudden learn new codes and learn new ways of, of working but Quite honestly, we're going to have to do that anyway. I mean, the, the other huge demographic, obviously, um, you know, there, there's there's race, there's women, but there's age too, right? Yeah. I mean, a lot of the people, my parents' age, for example, are kind of aging out in a way. Um, you know, especially with on the high end collectors, they've got like eight thousand bottles. <laughs> they don't really need any more. They've run out of space, um, and now they're really just drinking rosé and. Grenache, right? Yeah. Or whatever. So um, yeah, I think, you know, we're also having to look at, at millennials, Gen Z. Um, of course, we're always the forgotten generation. So we're just used to it by now. Um, Gen, or Gen X, rather. Gen X. Yeah, yeah. See, you even forgot your own generation there. See? <laughs> we, we are not Gen Z. We are not Gen Z. I learned that from my daughter, who's a Gen Z, apparently. So, you know, yeah, but I'm if you, it depends also where you live. Let's be perfectly honest with each other. Because, you know, I lived in the 90s in, in, in France and you went into a restaurant who drank, you know, wine there. That was essentially just the white population. And uh, you go to a restaurant to London and you have all age groups and all genders and, you know, and, and colors and provenance, you know, people from Africa, people from, you know, Asia, everywhere. And, uh, and I think there is a massive change that happened over the past, I would say, decade, decade and a half, which brought in a, a completely new class of uh, wine drinkers. And about 15 years ago, I remember going to Asia and the Bordelais being completely up in arms by the fact that young Asians are buying Lafitte at two, three years old and drink it right away, which is everybody says, oh, my God, what a sacrilege. Whereas these guys, they say, well, you know what? I have the money now. I'll drink it now because God knows if I'm going to have the money later on. And, you know, carpe diem, that's all I have to say, you know, and, um, and these, these people do it and live, uh, live and die by the sword. And we as, a, as merchants and producers, you just have to adapt yourself to who the audience is in front of you and not discriminate and don't look down on them because they consume wine differently than our generation uh, consumes wine. And I mean, you guys are in America, but the American wine consumption is growing, but it's still tiny compared to beer and spirits. I mean, it's really small. I mean, Ray, you must know that better than anyone because yeah. you're faced with it. No, absolutely. I mean, beer, beer is interesting because beer has been flat for several years as a category. And so it's not acquiring new customers um, in the way that wine and spirits particularly right now are. But it is, I mean, wine in the U.S. is interesting because it, it has been, I mean, the marketing of wine has ignored complete sections of the of the population which and I Jamie I think you're right it's it's a huge opportunity for for the wine business and it's honestly you know it's you know wine itself doesn't you know wine wine's available to anybody to enjoy it you can <laughs> doesn't matter you know in you either will like it or you won't but it doesn't have to do with your you know uh, background or whatever you just taste it and you you know um so but but the marketing and the business of it has been you know sort of bleakly <laughs> um, ignoring a, a lot of 
of you know audiences that would probably love wine and and it's it's not just wine the interesting thing in the u.s is that the food world has is ahead of wine in this i would say the, the sort of restaurant and chef world has been there's you know call it woke or whatever kind of definitely has woken up um and did so earlier than the wine side did um and to the benefit of everybody in the restaurant business i think you know it's it's you know it's realizing that you know not just that chefs don't have to be middle-aged white guys, but that the audience for great cooking is, is, is everybody, um, which is really cool. I, I, but the generational thing is fascinating to me too, because, you know, when I was 20, 18, whatever in college, nobody drank wine. There were no, I mean, we, we, it just wasn't part of our thing. And I know in my sort of my daughter's Gen Z, but kind of the next generation up cousins and things like that, they all are aware of wine. They all drink wine and whether they concentrate on it as a, as a something that they think deeply about, but they, they simply drink it at events with friends. Um, you know, it's not solely keg stands anymore or whatever. <laughs> so, you know, so that's, that's very heartening too, because that's, that's a, a massive audience. Um, but you know, the does, process... the, does the taste profile change also with this audience? You know, I, I think, I don't think that the, let's see how to put this. Wine is interesting because in theory, you know, food, we know what we like because we start eating food very early on, pretty much from the beginning. <laughs> you know, it's liquid for a while, but then we get to solid food pretty quickly. Wine, in theory, you don't actually know what you like until you're an adult. And certainly in the US, which is not a wine drinking country or in the way that France is or something like that. So, so I think that people's, I think it's more that people's palates when they're first getting into wine are different than they are when they've been in wine for a long time or, or when they're first getting into wine or when they liked wine for a long time. That happens to usually be when you're in your early 20s or something as opposed to your 40s or 50s. But I'm not sure that it's a generational thing so much as, a, as an experiential, like how much experience you have with it. People well, tend to it, like- the same, be, the same could be said of food, right? I mean- Yeah, totally. You have certain tastes um, that are usually sort of your culture and your the way you grew up when you're little. And as you get older, you may become more sophisticated and you may not. You may decide yeah. that, you know, those things from your, your childhood are the taste that you just like and that's it. And I think wine's kind of similar. Mm -hmm. Sometimes people start off with the, the, oftentimes in the US anyway, it's oftentimes slightly sweeter styles mm -hmm. um, just because they're a little more approachable, I think, a little easier to... Uh, a sugar-laden palate. <laughs> also, you know, U.S., a lot of people in the U.S. grew up drinking soda, you know, yeah. whether, you know, and it's a, it, it accustoms you to sweet drinks. Um, but what you said about the food industry was really interesting, too, because I think we've seen um, certainly um, over the last year to 18 months, um, the there have always been um, winemakers and winery owners who are um, black, um, indigenous and, and Asian American and all that kind of stuff, but they haven't really had the same um, visibility um, mm -hmm. that they've gotten over the last year or so. And I think we've all of a sudden realized that, oh, hang on, it's not just people drinking on the consumer side, it's actually people making wine too. It's actually people involved in the in the vineyard and in the, in the winery and, um, and I think that's something that definitely uh, is also helping to broaden the, the stretch and the reach uh, of wine culture generally. Um, it was an interesting question in the chat. I'd love if we could just 
the idea that if you're in London, you're already privileged. So I guess what we're saying is that those with the means are drinking wine, regardless of their background. It's a very interesting question. Well, it's interesting. Uh, it, my experience uh, has been, and uh, I was told this by someone who is much more intelligent than I am, has more experience, is that when you start out, what you just exactly said, both of you, is you start with a sweeter wine, just because we have this happy hormone that clicks in as soon as you have sweetness. And people start with the, you know, the Lambruscos, the whatever, you know, uh, the semi-sweet Proseccos and things like that, and even white wines. And they move on, if they go into red wine, they will always tend to go more towards Merlot, for example, and uh, or or blends which are easier and softer and gentler to drink. And then I met people who are, you know, I'm in my 50s. There are people who have never moved out of that. They drink claret. End of story. White wine, only white burgundy. Goodbye. Thank you. Is there anything wrong with it? No, but that's where it is. And then very few people make the step into Cabernet Franc and then Pinot Noir because these are harsher grape varieties to understand for people. And then you have those who then make the next step where you end up going towards the Nebbiolos. And then you already like, you know, it's, it's a tiny percentage of the population that does that. But the evolution tends to be like that. And, we, and it's the palate that grows up. I noticed it myself as well that over the past 20 years, my palate changed tremendously. I know, and and and, and now you're back at the sweet wines. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> you come all the way around. <laughs> but I'm Hungarian. I'm like Obelix. I got into it when I was, you know, a little kid. That's why, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I was, I was, I was, I was curious, Tanisha, uh, for the reasons why people would go to wine. Uh, you, you meet a lot of people that are interested in wine, or you're based in Paris, and there are people coming to you to discover more about it. Have the reasons for wanting to try wine has it changed has it evolved does it change with with the uh with the different communities the different people yes so i actually have two viewpoints on that one me being here in paris people are coming to me asking about wine because they're in france so they feel like i'm in france i should know something about wine can you help me know something about wine whereas in the states I think they're starting to see people drinking wine more. You see, you hear people rapping about it or singing about it. You see wine more in movies and in television shows. Like um, there's the instance, the TV show Scandal and Olivia Pope had these big wine glasses and everybody yeah. at that wine glass. Crate and Barrel sold out of those wine glasses. <laughs> so, so people are starting to see it more and then they want to kind of get into it, be a part of that and understand it a little bit. Because we all want to be Olivia Pope, let's face it. I mean, it's handled. We want to be yeah. her. But it's it's true that without, if you don't have, if if you never see anyone who, who looks like you and comes from your background drinking wine, you don't assume that wine is something you would drink. And I, I, it's funny because I've done a number of interviews with some of the NBA guys who are into wine. And there's a lot of guys in the basketball, National Basketball Association who are into wine. It's a it's a big thing in the NBA and they're all totally aware of the role model aspect of it too. Um, yeah. I mean, <laughs> that's LeBron <laughs> and they drink, and wine they drink really, really well. But you know, it's like, I was talking with Josh Hart and he's like, you know, yeah. I mean, he started a, a, a scholarship program for, for, you know, minority and, you know, uh, BIPOC people, anyone who's a student in that realm to take WSET classes. And I think that's, that's brilliant, you know, and it's, and, and you know, those conversations have been really interesting because it's not just like, I like to collect wine. It's like, I also know that, you know, young, young basketball fans are looking at me drinking wine and thinking, well, wine's cool. Um, 
you know, as opposed to what's wine or why would I want to do that? You know, I mean, I, it, they don't certainly look at me and say, well, that looks cool drinking wine. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we do, right? Why we are you saying this? Why, why, why are you saying this? Right. We, as a... I think I'd like to say something, something from, uh, uh, you know, you as a producer, Jamie, and us as the, uh, the wholesalers and importers, we have a responsibility towards the young, the young generation, the new generation of drinkers, because I, I mean, unfortunately, we are a non-regulated industry and there are a lot of people out there who are selling, who are cowboys, like in every industry. And, um, and I, have, I have received, I, I experienced that there were young people coming to me who have been offered wine to buy and to, or to drink that were clearly the people who were doing it. They were taking advantage of them from an investment perspective and also in the drinking perspective. And you can really discourage people and scare them away from the entire wine industry by if, if people try to get into it, whether there's as, as an investor or just a collector or just a drinker, if they encounter someone who is really shouldn't be in that industry, they might never come back again. And I think this is a very, very important thing for us, at least from my side, that we need to be honest with the, with the consumers and tell them and seek out what they like and not try to force them to drink something that we believe that they should drink. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I, I think, I mean, there are a ton of, I, I think there are probably more cowboys in your industry than mine. Um, but I do think that, you know, we have, you know, and here in Napa, we've had some really horrible examples over the last however long of people coming to Napa and really not being treated well. Um, I'm thinking of the, the group of black women who are on the wine train mm -hmm. I don't know, five or six years ago now. I mean, ridiculous, ridiculous. Um, and, um, you know, how many very loud women's parties have I hosted personally? Like a lot, you know, people that's, they're coming to wine country, they're having a few glasses, they're enjoying themselves, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, that something like that, not only for those people, but for everyone who hears about that story, who identifies with those people, that is a massive blow to, to our industry. And we have to be really, you know, thoughtful and careful because um, it's a business. Yes, we make wine and it's beautiful <laughs> and artistic and romantic and passionate and fabulous and all of those things. But we also do make our living with it. And we, if we alienate entire swathes of the population um, just through our own ignorance, I think we really do everyone a disservice. If you don't like loud crowds, don't go into the wine business. <laughs> or any alcohol, wine, yeah. beer, exactly. Like, Anything. what are you doing? Come on. I'm thinking librarian or something, maybe. Librarian yeah. work. Yeah. 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 So, so basically what, what is really, really interesting is that there is potentially a recognition that um, it's, it's important for all communities to be um, exposed to wine, regardless of their background, uh, because it's a wonderful drink and there shouldn't be any segregation on who you are, what your background is, what your race, your religion, whatever it is, uh, to have access to that, to that beautiful beverage. And, uh, and it's, it's somehow it's strange well, to, 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 to say that because it should be obvious uh, when you start with that because it's, it's, it's a drink for wine the Wine is about people. community too, yeah, right? Exactly. Wine is all about community. We share wine, we, we, we engage over a glass of wine or a bottle of wine. So um, yeah, I mean, I think it should just be pretty basically in our DNA. Yeah, and access without judgment. 
not mm-hmm. judging what people drink. If somebody only wants to drink Moscato, okay, fine, just drink that. Or if someone only yeah. wants to drink Togai, okay, fine, just drink that. But whatever you drink is what you drink. You can make suggestions, which is something in the wine industry I think is very important because due to the nature of it, what's available where you are subject, a lot of people are asking for suggestions. They don't know what wine they want. Whereas if they're going in and they want Jack Daniels, you will get Jack Daniels wherever you <laughs> But when it comes to wine, it's like, okay, maybe I want this particular type of wine. Okay, they don't have it. So now this person has to suggest something else to you. Um, uh, people should be more mindful of what they suggest and there is no judgment in what they suggest based on what you're asking for. Anyone who wants to, anyone who wants to judge you on your, on your wine choices, please know the number of massive collectors of thousands and thousands and thousands of dollar wines who started with white Zinfandel um, back in the day. There you I, go. I, I got drunk I mean, on peach liqueur behind the iron curtain at the end of the <laughs> can't start lower than me. Yeah. Sorry. And, and, we'll, and we'll finish the segment on that. I'm just going to show the, the, the results of the poll. Uh, how long have you, when did you start drinking wine? More I can't than five, remember. More than like the can't remember is number two. But, uh, 67% and then can't remember. So it's what I'm not going to say. Uh, super quick, super quick. Just two, two words, your thumbs up and thumbs down for, for, the, for, the, for the past week. Um, Akosh. Okay. Uh, everybody knows that uh, Union des Grands Crus in Bordeaux is the most well-funded organization of any kind of wine region in the world. They are absolutely incapable of organizing a tasting in London for people for the 2020 on premieres. Right? Is that a thumbs so up or down? <laughs> I don't know where it was going. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I was a little nervous. And number number two, number two is my thumbs up. Is that thank God there are some some chateaus who are intelligent enough when they know you spend hundreds of thousands of euros with them, you know, over the years they come and they send you samples. So we'll get some samples. So that's my thumbs up. Okay, Ray, do you have any thumbs up, thumbs down? Yeah, thumbs down. Um, that's very, very personal to me. But the realization that I have <laughs> at least a hundred or more, you know, bottles of, of affordable wine that I need to taste before the end of Friday. Um, <laughs> that's down. It's, okay. You know, it's, it's yeah, it's, it, you know, it, it happens sometimes. Someone in hell is another person's heaven. Huh? <laughs> yeah, and there will always be some good wines in there. There are some, um, I, I, to this day, I didn't grow up in a wine drinking family and I started drinking wine on a very minimal budget. And I'm still excited whenever I find something that's 1399 and is great. It's part, it's a large part of what I do, but yeah, I just waited a little bit too long. And your thumbs up in in one And my thumbs up, um, well, you know, I, I mean, it's un, does it have to be wine related? No, um, I knew everything. Yeah, uh, uh, thumbs up is that my daughter uh, decided, made her decision about where to go to college, and she's going to uh, uh, the American University of Rome. So she's going to school in Rome, which wow. means I get to go to Rome more often. Yeah. Oh, you know, <laughs> so I'm, it, it's, both, it's both cool for her and really great for me. <laughs> okay, Jamie. Awesome. All right, I'll be very quick. Um, it's sort of related to our conversation earlier. Uh, I was very lucky last week to be a part of something called the Be the Change Job Fair, um, which was a massive job fair, virtual job fair, organized online. Um, a bunch of, of larger wine, spirits, and beer companies for about 2,400 um, applicants from underserved communities. And uh, we got to talk about 
how we um, are basically are trying to be better as, as an industry and as, as individual companies, um, not just uh, so that we can encourage diversity, but just so we can be better human beings and have a better world. And it was really, really, really wonderful and heartening to see. And you're down? And you're down. Okay, Tanisha? Okay, my thumbs up. We have uh, the, the President Macron spoke recently and is released a four phase plan for when we get out of the cage. <laughs> nice. Yes. Okay. Thumbs, Any... thumbs down. The curfew will not be lifted till like June. So. Oh, he's going to sleep early. Good. <laughs> Thank you very much, all of you, for this great yeah. segment. We ran a little longer than usual, but it was a very interesting conversation. Thank you very much. And, uh, and we'll see you in a couple of weeks. Thank you. Up to uh, the next segment with Tanisha, License to Taste. Mm -hmm. Tanisha, today you're going to talk to us about uh, how to preserve wine after you open yes. it. And after if, you open it. Yes. And if anyone has questions to Tanisha, you can put them in the chat in the meantime. I'll read them and then ask for her afterwards. Yes. So a lot of people, whenever you uh, hear the question, oh, how do I preserve my wine or make it last longer? What do I do with my leftover wine? And then people say, oh, leftover wine, what's that? Okay, I know what it is. I have leftover wine. I can't drink it all, all right? It's just me. If I open a bottle, sometimes I can't finish it. There, I said it. So if you, this is recorded, so it is in there forever. I can't always finish a bottle, all right? There is sometimes leftover wine. What do I do? I have a few tricks. Now, this is a new one. Akosh just told me about uh, this, the Repour. This is the box. So I went out and got them. Thank you for that tip. This is it. And then this is what it looks, this is a cork. And then you pull this tab off the bottom and then you stick that in the bottle. And it's supposed to last for um, weeks. It says months. I don't know if I trust it for months, but you put it in the top of your bottle and it can last a week, two weeks. And you can even take the cork out, pour yourself a glass, put this cork, put it back in the bottle and um, it should keep your wine fresh. Yeah, just one note, uh, we're not sponsored. So these are things that no. Oh no, these are all we're, my suggestions. Yeah, yeah, we're, we're using them. There's no sponsorship. It's just, it's just yeah. bona fide These are stuff. just things, I'm right. Thank you for that. Appreciate it. Uh, this is a art wine preserver. It's a gas. Oof, that's a big thing. Yes, it's a gas. Okay. And you take the gun. Well, I mean, not the gun, but the trigger. <laughs> pss, 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 and you, you put it in the bottle for a couple of seconds. And uh, it's sorry, sorry, I didn't get it. You put it in the bottle. You put it, yeah. You put it in the top of the bottle, and then you count for two seconds. So you count out two seconds. One one thousand, two one thousand. Yes, and that's it. Now I don't want to waste it. I need it. You mean it's like foam or something like that? No, it's just gas. What so. <laughs> it's gas. Yeah. yeah. Okay. You, you put the it gas in. Our, Heavy argon gas. It protects the wine by providing a harmless non-reactive layer of heavy argon gas. And then you put the cork on top of it. 
I guess. And then you put the cork ah, on top. Okay, now I get it. Yeah. Oh, you thought just leave it, <laughs> yes, you know, loose. Yeah. Because <laughs> if you put too much gas, the wine's going to go up. That's anyway, you know. Right. So this I have used before, and it has kept my wine fresh. I mean, of course, once you open it, it's not going to taste the same as if you've never opened it. So it's not exactly the same. But five days later, I went back to a red wine and it was not spoiled. It was not oxidized. It was fine. It was still red. Yeah, it was still red. Okay. And not vinegar. Okay, good. Yeah. So By the way, uh, Akosh was saying in the chat that uh, the report, the only issue with the report is that you can't use it when you are having the bottles lying down. So the bottle has to stand up yeah, if you have the it. bottle has to and stand up. And then I actually okay. see that's on the back of the box. Do not store your wine bottle on its side. So okay. I think it maybe the wine spills out. It might not be. Okay. And Jamie's saying that usually they sometimes they use argon in the wineries to uh, to avoid the wines uh, from oxidizing. So yeah, it works. So there okay. you go. Sorry. Fair enough. I'm clearly on the right track. Yeah, you definitely are. You are okay, our Ray said he wrote about the repour, so everybody repour works. Uh, another thing too, if you have um, your bottles that have glass corks like these, if like these still work better than putting the regular cork trying to shove that back in. So even if you you know don't have any of these other fanciful things, if you can just you have the glass cork or you have a stopper that completely goes all the way in, that is better. Okay. Now, last trick, some people are not going to like this one. I'm not going to agree. Oh, okay. The problem is when you <laughs> wine, you have, you know, you have more oxygen in the bottle because uh -huh. you have the space now for what you drink. Yeah. Well, if you uh, have salsa or jelly or jam or any kind of jar, if you put the wine in that, which is, it, I mean, not this one because it's all this air here. But if you have a smaller container and you put the wine in that and then seal it, it will last a little bit longer as well. So that's just a little life hack. Okay. Now compared to just putting the cork back on the on the wine, putting it in the refrigerator, how much longer can you keep these things with the solutions you were giving us? These you can keep for, I say, several days longer. Okay. Yeah. Now that depends on how long you keep wine. Like again, for me, if I can't finish a bottle one day, I may want to come back to it in four or five days just because I get bored with drinking the same thing. So I'll come back to it after a few days. And then with the gas, it's worked out fine. It has worked out fine with the with the jar. Okay. What kind of jar? So old salsa jar, old guacamole jar, if you get jar guacamole okay. or soup, whatever. As long as they are sterilized and, uh, and clean and everything. That, yes. Okay, excellent. So those are my tips. Hopefully oh. that someone, they try that. And, oh, uh, Akosh is coming like back. To, I, just <laughs> like say, I just like to say that, you know, you have the Coravin as well. Yes, yes. And there is another issue is that you should work harder train yourself to finish your bottles. That's all. Okay, yeah, yeah I gotta get my, I gotta get my weight up. I haven't, I haven't worked out to. Yeah, I mean, you know, I have this only for show, but really. Yeah. yeah. You never use it because the bottles. Well, I used it quick. tonight just because we're on a call. Otherwise, forget it. Okay. <laughs> Fair enough. And I don't have one. So people talk about it all the time. I have not broken down. And it, it works. It works. But you have to, obviously, you have to keep it lying down. 
mm-hmm. and um, and also uh, white wines uh, hold less than red wines. Okay, mm. does does hold? I can tell you, sweet wine holds three four months, white wine easily a month month and a half. Well, and red wine two months if you but don't shake it and stuff like that. Yeah. If it reaches a certain quantity, like below half, pop the cork and drink it. Okay. Perfect. Well, now everybody, everyone knows how to preserve their wine, but usually yes. you use it only in emergency cases because usually you finish the bottle before that. Yeah. Right. Like today is not an emergency. I'm going to finish. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Thank you very much. We're going to call it today. We'll see you in two weeks. Thank you very much. Yes. And off we go. Last but not least, with, have a drink with me with our special guest, uh, Laura Catena. I do want to make Antoine a comment uh, about uh, this drinking wine uh, and finishing the bottle or not, yes. because, you know, I'm, I'm a medical doctor and um, I feel very, very strongly about drinking wine in moderation. Yes. So I think it's, it's very good that you have this session on how to preserve wine so that you don't drink the whole bottle. Akos, I'm sorry, <laughs> but I have to give you a little doctor lecture here. So, you know, um, women should not drink more than one glass of wine per day. Uh, men should not drink more than two. There's good literature on this, that if you drink more, you don't get the, the phenomenal benefits of, you know, decreasing rates of dementia, lower heart attacks, uh, better uh, sugar controls and diabetics. So if you drink in moderation, you have all the benefits. Once you start drinking uh, not in moderation, you know, overly, then you lose all these benefits. And, uh, you know, to me, the, the perfect solution is to drink really, really good wine and drink less of it. Um, and, uh, and I think this is really important. In fact, it would be best if most people skipped one or two days per week and actually didn't drink. And I, I tried to do that, but it's very difficult because I am used to my, my glass of wine every evening and, and it's a big sacrifice to skip. I tried to skip two, but I generally only skip one day. Uh, but I, I do think that as, you know, as a wine community, um, we need to emphasize that people need to drink in moderation uh, or not at all. If you're unable to drink in moderation, I know this is very depressing news and we can move on Antoine, but- No, but I think, I think you're right. You, I think uh, totally moderation is always great for everything in life actually, moderation is very good. So you enjoy it even longer and more. And even sports people, they do, they do have a glass of wine to maximum when they train and it's, it's very good for them. So yes, drink in moderation. There's always a small introduction before we start the, uh, uh, the, the interview per se. It actually all started with Laura Catena, great-grandfather, Nicola Catena. At the end of the 19th century, young Catena, only 18 years old, left Italy to Argentina and he planted his first Malbec in 1902, long time ago. Little did he know what would happen many years later. Now, much later, Laura Catena was born in Mendoza, Argentina, La Tierra del Sol y del Vino. So in English, it sounds like the land of the sun and wine. Sounds better in Spanish. Anyway, from the mid 70s to the early 80s, a ruthless military dictatorship took over Argentina and the family moved to Berkeley. She learned English. Her father learned from the likes of Robert Mondavi how to make the best wines in the world. When he returned to Mendoza in the mid 80s, is her father decided to produce the best Malbec in the world. Everybody told him, it won't work. It did. Now, 
In the meantime, also, Laura Catena graduated from Harvard and received a medical doctor degree from Stanford University, and she started practicing as an emergency doctor. So you're wondering where the link with wine is? We get to that. Now, she formally joined uh, the family winery in 95 by creating the Catena Wine Institute. You know, this nerdy approach of research and science, it's close to what she was doing, but it's still also close to the wine part. Now, nowadays, she is recognized as the face of Argentine wine, excellent choice, for her active role in the studying and promoting the Mendoza wine region and the Argentine Malbec. Now, during our conversation, while preparing for the show, I felt her deep sense of duty and dedication to her craft, to her region, and to her country. And maybe she draws that from her medical work. Actually, I think there's an uncanny resemblance between doctors and winemakers. They are both committed to do their best in harmony with the surroundings. In both cases, they are doing good to others. And it takes a lot of humility to perform such acts. And Laura Catena has such humility. Doctors take the Hippocratic Oath. So how about winemakers taking the oath of Bacchus? And it was something like this. I swear by Bacchus, by Dionysus, by Demeter, by Eros, there was love in that, and by all the gods and goddesses, making them my witnesses that I will carry out according to my ability and judgment this oath. To hold nature in this art equal to my own parents, to make her partner in my livelihood when she is in need of care to share mine with her. I will use those techniques which will benefit nature according to my greatest ability and judgment, and I will do no harm or injustice to her. Neither will I administer a poison to nature when asked to do so, nor will I suggest such a course. Now, if I carry out this oath and break it not, may I gain forever reputation among all women and men for my life and for my art. But if I break it and forswear myself, may the opposite befall me. Laura Catena, it's a fantastic pleasure to welcome you to the Wine Hour. Thank you, Anton. That was fantastic. Did, wait, did you uh, change the Hippocratic Oath and turn it into your own Bacchus Oath? Yes. We need to make a poster about this. I want it in, <laughs> at the winery. And translate into Spanish and French and every language. We'll, we'll do that. I just I actually I, I changed just a couple of words. That's it. The rest is the same. And, We're going uh, to call it the 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 Bacchus Oath by Antoine. <laughs> now, there's there's one question that comes to everybody's mind. You are living between San Francisco and Mendoza. Uh, you are a doctor, uh, emergency doctor. You're doing now some volunteering work for for COVID actually as well. Uh, you take care of a winery, you take care of the Catena Wine Institute, you have your own winery, Luca. And how do you do that? And how do you manage all these activities mm -hmm. together? Well, um, I do have quite a bit of energy and uh, I, I still feel fairly youthful in terms of that. Um, but, you know, uh, there's, I'd say two things. First of all, I am very passionate about what I do, like you said. And, and you know, the day I figured out that I could help just as many people making wine as being a doctor, uh, and that's because, you know, as a doctor, you take care of patients, and, and I love being a doctor, but as a wine producer, um, you know, following in this movement that my father started of elevating Argentine wine, uh, you know, 25 years ago, nobody knew 
wine from Argentina. Nobody knew we could make fine wine. You know, today we have these highly rated wines, our wines are being collected. Uh, and this is not just, you know, money in the pocket of the Catena family. This is elevating our whole region, the whole region of Mendoza, other producers, the people who work at the wineries. Um, and what I realized was that actually by running a responsible business that signs your Bacchus by Antoine oath, because that is that oath is fantastic, you know, to protect the environment, to protect the people. Um, but, you know, by changing the perception of Argentine wine to understand that we do have these Grand Cru equivalent sites and the terroir, and we have this variety Malbec that is, you know, so phenomenal because it has color and, and texture and these smooth tannins, that, um, you know, helps people and preserves this uh, tradition that's been around for hundreds of years. And so I'm very passionate about that. And it's when you're doing something you're passionate about, I think this whole, everybody that's here on this call knows that it's so much easier to do something you're passionate about. Uh, but the second, um, yes. Yes, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. And I was going to ask yeah. you about the passion and about you know, Argentina, but just go ahead, go ahead. Okay, but, but the second thing actually might surprise some of you. And it's the philosophy that I call accepting the B minus. And everybody is shocked when they hear me say this. And, and what it is, is that in order to um, do all the things you need to do in life, you need to accept that, um, especially if you're a high achieving person, somebody that's ambitious, uh, you need to accept that you're going to do some things really, really well and some things really, really badly uh, because otherwise you can't do them all. So, um, you know, for example, taking care of patients was always a priority. I never went to bed late or flew in from somewhere if I had a shift at the hospital because you know you people's lives are so important. Uh, my children feeling loved, that's very important. I hug them all the time. Uh, but you know, forgetting sometimes to send them with a lunch for a school or you know I'm late to submit the forms for something or you know my children could tell you all the ways I have maybe uh, missed things because of traveling and working so hard. And it's actually made them stronger, I feel. Um, so I think uh, I'm also a terrible cook, terrible tennis player. My <laughs> husband says I'm a terrible wife uh, because I pay no attention to him. And I try, but he's right. I am not uh, the best of wives, I would say. Uh, but, but, you know, you have to accept that in order to do some things really well, you have to do some other things, maybe not so well. And, and when, you, when you come to that point, which to me came late, like when I was in my late thirties, before that I was very stressed out and anxious all the time because everything had to be perfect. When I came to that realization, uh, I think I was able to do better work and, and, and not be as, as stressed out. Yeah, because when you were talking you know, about your engagement and how much you are dedicated to that, what is what is striking with Argentina is that you're an underdog. No, and nobody would have thought that, you know, um, at the end of the day, you would get some great wines from, from Argentina. So what was the main driver uh, to, 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 to become worldwide recognized? And what can other countries potentially learn from, from that experience? Yeah. Well, listen, when, when my father came back from California, because he left Argentina during the military government uh, for a few years, and that's where he saw what Mondavi was doing, Judgment of Paris, you know, Jamie's family was very involved in, in you know, the birth of California as, you know, a, an equivalent to the best wines of Europe. Um, he saw that what was happening in California, that was when Chile 
you know, had come in with all these really uh, inexpensive wine and was dominating the inexpensive wine category. And most people thought Argentina should do the same. And my father said, no, if the Californians can challenge the French, I'm going to go do this in Argentina. And at that time, he was told he was crazy. Uh, but the first thing you have to do if you try to do this for your region or for a variety is you have to know is, do you have the terroir? And this is where the French really are right. You know, there's no amount of technology, you know, barrels, presses, there is nothing you can do if you have a bad terroir. Uh, if, if you don't have the right combination of sunlight, uh, you know, good weather, not too cold, not too hot, right for the particular variety, well-drained soils that are not too fertile, um, you know, relatively dry uh, climate because otherwise you get all kinds of pests. Uh, so you need the terroir. Um, you need to also, I think, have um, terroir differences, you know, that, that there's some variation so that you can have, you know, the sites that are more special, like Grand Cru-like and the, the sites that are maybe better for everyday wine. Um, so I think that it's important to first know, can my region produce these, you know, uh, Grand Vin, Grand Cru quality wines? That's the first question. If the answer is yes, then you need to research the soils, the climate, to figure out what are those really special spots. Um, and then you need to go tell the world about it. Uh, and that takes a lot of work, a lot of research, a lot of trial and error. And the reason why I'm a fan of research is that I think that trial and error takes too long. You know, I don't have um, the time that the sister scene monks had in Burgundy to try for 500 years, you know, different winemaking, different selections of plants. Uh, so when you do research, you're able to come to conclusions a little more quickly. Um, and, and that's why we research, you know, the soils, the climate. Uh, we just published an article in Scientific Reports that showed 26 different sites um, for Malbec that have different flavors by their chemical uh, profile, like the chemical fingerprint. And this is actually the largest uh, terroir study ever done in the world. Yeah, one it, spectator. It yeah, one spectator just spoke yeah. about that. Yeah, but I want to. I want to come back one second to the. Yeah. Uh, to, so you were talking about the how. You know, you decided. Okay, you want to do fine wine, great wine, worldwide recognized wine. Uh, you happen to have the terroir for it, and you happen to uh, to 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 put the dedication for it. Why? Because well, <laughs> yes. at the end of the day, everybody yeah. was telling you, Absolutely. no, you don't, yeah. not going to work, and, and, you can do and, like and, a Chilean, but why would you do that? Yeah, and just for everybody to understand how difficult it was, I mean, we were planting in high altitude areas looking for cooler climate where nobody had planted before. So there was a lot of risk. And that, that's another thing. You have to be willing to take risks, which is hard because risk is money. And, you know, and I think this is where my father was brilliant. Uh, he just decided, you know, I'm going to do it. And he, and he always says that he got lucky. And I think he's right. So why do it? Because, you know, if you are selling low-end wine, you're really in a commodity business. And, you know, I think many, uh, in the initial discussion, we talked about younger people drinking wine. I mean, wine is a luxury, you know, and it's a beautiful luxury. It's like art. Every wine bottle is different. Even from the same producer, actually, there's a little variability because of the cork. But if you think about it, there's thousands and thousands and thousands of wines out there. Wine is like art. Every vintage is different. So I'm not surprised that people collect it. I'm not surprised that young people develop it as a, as a hobby, people of all ages. And so I think that, um, you know, if you're selling wine like Coca-Cola, 
where you're just making volume, uh, that, that um, well, first of all, I'm not very passionate. I, I'm passionate about wines of place, but let's say that I was in that business. You know, it's not a very good business in terms of the economics because, you know, the prices are, are very low and you can't help a lot of people unless you can make some money. And that, that's actually one of the big things that I learned, you know, when I started at the winery, uh, you know, I was a doctor. For me, money meant nothing. I was uninterested in money. That's why I didn't go into the family business in the first place, because I thought people who thought about money, you know, that were not my kind of people. Now I realize that you need money to help people. So you know, if I need to, if I want to pay better salaries uh, for people in the countryside, um, if I want to pay for my team's education and do all these things for them, uh, I need to make some money, uh, you know, and, and I think that in the, you know, in the low end, uh, it's, it's, a, it's really a commodity business. And uh, in the end, it's, it's less interesting, not just from a, you know, hedonistic point of view, but also from a, from a sustainable point of view for a region. If I remember correctly, your father, when he wanted to, to, he wanted to help Argentina get out of the economic troubles it was in, and he studied economics at Columbia University in, in New York. And um, was it was wine a way to actually help Argentina uh, in terms of its industry because it's you know it spearheaded a lot of people came afterwards. You know, you have yeah. super high-end, very well-known consultant and winemakers, they're all flocking to, to, to Argentina. So was, was wine the way of, of achieving that objective for him? Well, you know, in that sense, actually, my father initially, uh, it's, it's a long story, but he was actually intending to emigrate from Argentina and, and go, he had been offered a scholarship to study physics in the U.S. Uh, and then actually his mother died in a car accident and he ended up staying. But he, like me, he had not initially intended to work in the, in the family winery. Uh, but I think that, you know, he really fell in love with wine, just like I did. Um, and he realized that he could make a difference. Uh, but it was a very ambitious goal, you know, to make collectible Argentine wines, um, to make, uh, you know, uh, wines of place, uh, unforgettable wines. You know, the wines that, that we're making today and many other producers from Argentina was really a, a fantasy. And I think that um, in the end, you know, he kind of went back to the family winery uh, and the same thing happened to me. I really fell in love. When I started, it was mostly I wanted to help my father. I thought this was a really difficult project. I liked the science part of it. And now it's become, you know, something that drives me, um, you know, because I want Argentina to succeed and, and I want to elevate my region. And I think a similar thing has happened to my father. And, and another thing is, you know, sometimes you know, in, in these developing countries, uh, you know, you and I were talking about that comparing to Lebanon, you know, people often think, okay, you know, you can't make something great in a developing country. But actually, you know, in terms of wine, terroir is terroir. You know, the geology is not, uh, you know, it's not correlated with wealth. The geology is there, you know, for, for us to take. And, you know, if you're lucky enough to have this special terroir, like we have in the high altitude of Mendoza, you know, you have something as precious as what they have in, 
in France and in Italy and in the United States. And, and actually there are some very wealthy countries that don't have great white terroir. You know, like let's think of a country like Denmark. I mean, with climate change, they might, but not right now. Yeah, not right now. <laughs> Coming back to the science part. So we were talking about this, there was this article in Wine Spectator who was talking about the study you did on terroir and that you were basically able to quantify what terroir is. And you said, you're saying basically that, you know, chemically you can recognize a terroir. Now, the question is, why is it so important? Well, uh, the reason it's important, and, and it's actually, we had uh, like a dozen anthocyanins, and then um, I think it's like 36 um, small molecular weight uh, polyphenols that we tested, and the patterns were reproducible for half of the locations over three years. So that's the definition of terroir, which is, you know, a specific fingerprint for a wine that comes from one place. Um, and um, why does that matter? Because I first think that with climate change, uh, we are going to have to preserve so many things. You know, we're one of the things we're doing is preserving Massau selections of Malbec. Most of the world has really reduced the, the genetic diversity of varieties, you know, Cabernet Sauvignon, Merlot, Pinot Noir. You know, there, there's, after Philoxor, there was a severe reduction. In Argentina, we still have incredible genetic diversity. We are ungrafted, our vineyards are ungrafted. So I think that we need to preserve that genetic diversity uh, for climate change, because we, there might be some genes that are necessary for what's gonna happen that we need. In terms of why we need to study the fingerprint of each place, because uh, to me, each one of these tastes of place, you know, our jewels, our, our, our human heritage, our, our, the, um, you know, it's like heritage of humanity. And if we understand them, then we can figure out how to preserve them, uh, how to maybe find that flavor in another place if, if a place becomes okay. too warm. So I think of um, our vision at the Institute is actually to use science to preserve nature and culture be because they're both together, nature and culture. Remember wine, really vines are not native to most of these places. So they're living within an ecosystem but they're native in the, in the way that they become native to a place because of the viticultural traditions. Yeah, the, uh, the, the science part um, is, is, is actually so important because I think it's a way to better understand. Because as you were saying, uh, there's a lot of things that people were doing by hunch. And the French people would tell me terroir is a, this France's terroir, that's it. There's no other terroir outside of France. And, and now you're starting to show that, that actually terroir is a, is a reality in many different places. Um, and you were talking a lot about climate change and about some of the main challenges that are going to take place in, in the future. Um, what are the main challenges for wine in, in Argentina in particular? Yeah. Well, so climate for sure is an issue in terms of the climate, the, the, the world becoming hotter, except that you know, 25 years ago, we moved to the Uco Valley, which is a cooler climate. So in a way, we have like an insurance for a couple of decades that we're already in a cool climate. Water is a much bigger issue for us because the Andean glaciers are melting and we have underground water, but it all comes from the glaciers and we have very little rain. We are having more rain. That's part of climate change. And it's good because we can collect that water. Uh, but we're also planting in other parts of Argentina, down south in Patagonia and further north in um, La Rioja, Argentina. We have a place called La Rioja, like in Spain and in Salta, because there's other sources of water. So water is a big issue. We do a lot of research on how to preserve water. 
and, and the third very important issue that is, I think, an issue all over the world is people leaving the countryside for the cities. Um, and we actually have these programs where we have uh, high school kids come and uh, experience you know, a day in the vineyard. Um, they come to the winery and we give them grape juice because obviously we don't wanna give them wine because they're, they're young. Uh, but we want them to know that it's very exciting actually to, to live in the vineyard. And, and today with Netflix and all, if you have good internet, you can have access to so many other things. And um, you, know, you can travel through your, your phone, uh, which is maybe a sad thing, but um, I think that a lot of people leave the countryside looking for better opportunities. And I actually think that um, it's our job if we want people to stay, to make their lives good. And so one of the things that I do is I, have, I pay a lot of money to have really good internet for everybody in the countryside. Because if the parents can't give their kids a good education and for a good education, you need good internet, then they're going to leave and move to the city. And I, I want families to, to feel that they can have access to, you know, to a, a lot of the things that they need for their kids, education being so important by staying in the countryside. And, and this I think is, is as important as uh, the, the temperature change. Okay, so the, cult, the, the, uh, the demographics to make sure that people stay in the countryside and they continue uh, to develop to develop it and uh, to make it uh, to make it work for them. What is what is actually um, strange is that in Europe there's a lot of people now that are going out of the cities because with yeah. COVID they realize that it's yeah. not a life. You know, I can't really enjoy my life there, and yeah. I, actually I can do remote work. And they were moving out of the of they're moving out of the cities to go in. In places where the quality of life is is is, is much nicer. Uh, so in, in Argentina, people are still there. There's still that movement from countryside to, to cities. Well, there is, but there's still a lot of people staying in the countryside. Okay. Um, I want to make sure that that they stay for the right reasons, not because they have no choice. Um, I want to, you know, we have this incredible culture in Argentina where most people... Uh, you know, the grandparents take care of the grandkids, you know, uh, when they retire, uh, that people go to their mother's house for lunch with all their cousins every Sunday. And it's this strong uh, local culture that is part of winemaking. And I think it's a beautiful way to live, uh, but it's, it's tied to economic opportunity. And if you can't give people economic opportunity, they should leave. You know, they have the right to leave and, and that's what they're going to do. And so to me, this is a big part of our sustainable effort is um, our communities and how do we, um, you know, how do we make their lives uh, worth staying for? Now, any, any questions from the, from the audience to Laura Catena? They're being shy today. So another, another question while they are, they are preparing their, their, their question. When you look at the, the country itself, okay, and the more you see about it, the more you discover about it, the more fascinating the place. Why such a wonderful place has so many problems? Ah, well, uh, you know, you know, I'm a fourth generation Italian. I blame it on the Italians. <laughs> uh, you know, no, uh, you know, I think Argentina has everything. Um, and I don't know, maybe we're too passionate our people are too passionate. Uh, but, you know, having lived through a military government and through a democracy and having all the messes of the democracy, I still, um, I think 
democracies figure things out. And I'm very, I'm very optimistic about Argentina, even if most people today are not very optimistic because they're shut in their homes and with COVID. I mean, this is a very hard time to be optimistic, but I think we will get through. And I think it's a beautiful country with great people. And um, I think the future will be brighter. Okay, we have a question from Bernard Alinaina. I hope I pronounced it well, sorry. Uh, how has the pandemic changed the way you market your wines? Oh, it's changed so many things. You know, we, we have staff all over. Uh, we have people in, in different parts of the world, not a lot. Uh, we have about six people that live outside of Argentina that, sell our, that help us sell our wines. Um, but, you know, we've gone completely virtual. Uh, for me, it's been really hard because I had to teach a lot of people on my team to work virtual. I've been doing it my whole life. Uh, and so we're doing a lot of virtual tastings, more on social media, um, trying to make these virtual tastings fun. Um, you know, doing things like, you know, tomorrow somebody's visiting an account, they're going to call me for five minutes to say hello. Uh, so one of the things that I think is, has been really fun about the pandemic is that before, uh, you know, I thought I had to get on a plane and go see somebody. And I think now people... Uh, want to see me maybe when I go there on my trip that I do once every two years or one every three years, but they're happy to have a check-in with me, a brief check-in, uh, five, 10, 15 minutes, um, you know, just to see how things are going. So I feel like today I can be in contact with so many more of, of the people who buy our wine all over the world. And to me, that's been very exciting. Um, and, and so I would say, I don't think what I'm saying is any is very different than from other people. Um, you know, in terms of the winery itself, um, I think it's forced us to become even better organized okay. because we had to have all these protocols and things. So I think it's it's I think in some ways it's helped. Uh, I think it's been very hard on people emotionally, and I am very ready for the pandemic to be over. I think people are very stressed, not being you know the people who are working in sales, you know, being at home, they're, used, they're people who are very outgoing. Uh, so, um, yeah. Hopefully it's going to I end very soon. I keep on talking for yeah. a while. Yeah, yeah. Yes. One very last question from, uh, from Nicole Rollet. Uh, you're changing your plans in terms of your export priorities, in terms of markets you want to go? Uh, well, we have seen a, a, like an incredible growth in sales in Argentina, which was very surprising because everybody was stuck at home. And I think, uh, but I think, you know, since people were not going out, they were drinking fine wine at home, which is a trend that we've seen all over the world. Well, we did see it in Argentina, like increasing consumption of very fine wine. Um, in terms of our priorities, um, you know, for sure, we've been selling less wine in China, uh, which, um, you know, I, I think France is seeing that. A, a lot of, um, you know, European producers are seeing us. For us, China, it has never been our, our main market. You know, our main markets are export. First, it's Argentina, and then exports, it's, uh, you know, North America and Europe. Uh, so I would say, Nicole, that uh, we, we have all the people that were already uh, out there in the market working for us uh, are the same. Um, they're all pretty eager to start traveling again, uh, except for Asia, which, like, our guy in China, like, you know, he was locked up for three months and then he was back out. Uh, but I would say, um, I think there will be a lot more Zoom happening for sure. Uh, but um, I'm, I'm still deciding what to do even next year. So actually, okay. Nicole, you and I should get together on the phone <laughs> and figure out uh, like what are some good ideas. I want to hear from you. 
Okay. Okay. Well, there's a there's a date uh, to be yes. to, to reset. Um, thank you. So before we conclude the interview, and as always, we're going to finish with the people questionnaire. Are you ready? Yes. Okay. So what is your favorite word? Amore. Uh, what is Ray, your... is gonna, <laughs> Ray, you better work on that word if you're going uh, to Italy. What yeah. is your least favorite word? No. Okay. What is your favorite virtue? Kindness. What is your favorite quality in a man? Energetic. What is your favorite quality in a woman? Energetic. What wine would you use to describe yourself? Malbec. <laughs> Obviously. <laughs> what is your favorite? Actually, actually, Antoine, I, I, I was with my husband last night and I said, oh, here's this question. What wine? He's like, of course, Malbec. And I said, of course, but I hadn't thought of it. I was trying to think through all the different varieties. He said, you are Malbec. Just, it's Malbec. <laughs> what is your favorite curse word in any languages? Okay, I might have to explain a little. It's boludo. It's a word in Spanish that means uh, the balls of a man. Please, I'm sorry, Antoine, don't be offended. But you can call a woman boluda. You can call a woman boluda or you can call a man boludo. And it can be an insult or it can be a, hey, che boludo, like, like a friendly thing. So it's a word that has many meanings and you can use it when you're mad or when you're happy. And I love it. Okay, but it sounds, is it typically Argentine? Because in, in Spain, it's typically Argentine. this is something different. Maybe it's different in Spain. I hope yeah. I didn't offend any Spanish yeah. people. <laughs> <It's> okay. <laughs> <laughs> what, sounds, what sound or noise do you love? I love wind chimes. Okay, what sound or noise do you hate? Honking. Uh, what plant or animal would you like to be reincarnated in? Uh, my dog, Nala. If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? Laura, let's go and have a glass of wine and talk about all the people down there. <laughs> Laura Catena, thank you very much. Thank you, Anton. This concludes the Wine Hour for today. Thank you very much to Laura Catena, to the Wine Dream Team, to the audience. Thank you for listening. Next show is on May 13. Until then, be safe, be well, faith always. Goodbye.